China now is a great power. And one of the prerogatives of a great power is you get to throw your weight around. You even get to bully. And there's something of that, I think, uh, a kind of a, a cathartic sense of uh, relief that China has restored itself to a position of sufficient wealth and power that it now can have its way in the world. The Empire's New Clothes coming at you again. Like, subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much for doing those things. Please share with your friends. It really helps us out. This week, we're speaking with Orville Shell. Really cool conversation. He's the a former professor and dean of University of California, Berkeley. He's the director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations, and he's a longtime author and journalist on China. We dive into the arc of U.S.-China relations stretching back to the Nixon era and even before, and then what's been happening recently with Xi Jinping and the bit of the transition from this policy of engagement to more of a confrontational period. Very, very, very cool. I certainly learned a lot preparing for this, and he's the kind of person you could sit down and just speak with for hours and hours. So I, I really hope you enjoy this one. Orville, welcome so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. So I was doing a bit of research preparing, and you you speak Chinese. Is this correct? I do. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's, it must be such an accomplishment, but my, my question is, do you have a Chinese name? I do. It's Xiaowei. Uh, I don't, do you speak Chinese? Like... V- it, yeah. Basically, no. no. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I can tell you what the characters are. Uh, it's the character for Summer or the Xia Dynasty, and Wei is Wei Dada Wei, the, or the first character in Great. So, like, it, like Great Summer. You could Something say like that. that? Well, the, that. My surname also was one of the sort of early mythic dynasties in the prehistory of Chinese, sort of. It's a pretty regal name. I like that. Well, that's what I have. Yeah, I, I actually, I've got a friend. He's been in China for years, and uh, someone gave him his name. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, what's your name? And he, he says, uh, it's Un Da Chuan. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? He's like, oh, it's just, it, it's nothing fancy. It just means the Great Mountain Range. And I'm like, your name is the Great Mountain Range? That's the... That's such a strong name. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, he, so you guys both lucked out. But um, you, you have such a long history in, in China, thinking about China, writing about China. Um, I'm very excited to sit down for a moment and hear some of your thoughts. Perhaps for, for listeners, are you able to give us just a real brief rundown of, say, the modern history of China-U.S. relations and, like, where did, you know, this relationship kind of begin recently and then where are we today? Well, you know, the U.S.-China relationship has has really been through so many different iterations that ricocheting back and forth between sort of the two poles of attraction and repulsion. 
and I suppose you'd say the modern day relationship. Uh, of course, we were allies with the nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek against the Japanese in World War II. And then when Mao Zedong took over after the Civil War ended in 1949, we plunged into a, several decades of sort of very Arctic Cold War. And that came to an end, um, <clears throat> you know, some 22 years after the People's Republic of China was founded with Kissinger and Nixon. But e even since then, when we, of course, teamed up with China against the Soviet Union, both countries judging it to be the more uh, 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 menacing uh, adversary, uh, we've been through periods of tremendous opening up and, and actual warmth and congruency between our two countries, cultures, body politics, economies, and periods of, of very uh, a frigid sort of uh, uh, Arctic tension uh, after 1989, mm -hmm. and now again. Um, so it is a, a, a very dynamic um, relationship which careens in, in some some rather extreme manner uh, between um, embrace and, and, and sort of pushback and rejection. I mean, remember, we were at war with China and Korea in the 50s. Uh, mm -hmm. Many, many Americans and, and many more Chinese died as a result of lots of Koreans. So it's been a very fraught relationship and it's been very hard to have it uh, find balance. I would say this, though. Uh, we did have a period, a number of decades, where it oscillated between closeness and distance, but we had what was known as engagement, where the presumption was that slowly China was was reforming and, and changing, it would never become like a liberal democratic country, but it was would become somewhat more convergent. And that enabled us to stabilize things uh, to a considerable degree into trade with each other. And I think it is that kind of uh, formula, that framework that uh, Xi Jinping's new uh, authoritarianism and wolf warrior diplomacy has really put a stake through the heart of. And, uh, and so we're sort of drifting uh, in a very dangerous waters in a spiral downward uh, in the relationship and nobody quite knows how to arrest it. Hmm. Does it feel somewhat like a chapter has been turned on that period of engagement stretching back to Nixon? I mean, I think we have to, you know, acknowledge we've come to the end of an era. And the era was that China was opening up, reforming. And while there were very big differences between a one-party Leninist system, which China still was, and a liberal democratic form of governance, that we could get along and that they were slowly progressing towards a more open, more just, and somewhat more absorbable form of governance in the, in the order that the United States and European powers had established after World War II. But I think that sadly now has ended. And how we can restabilize it around what new idea, what new concept is, is, is the question. Was China invested in reforming, or was this more of a story the U.S. we we told ourselves, and China was all too happy to to go along with that? You know, I think 
after Mao Zedong died in 1976, and I remember my first trip, I went for several months in 1975 when Mao was still alive. And there was no suggestion at that time, the Cultural Revolution was still going on, that, that you know China would change. And yet, when Deng Xiaoping came back into power, having been cashiered twice, he did implement a really uh, sort of uh, a very dramatic uh, regimen of reform and opening to the outside world, a little like perestroika and glasnost in Russia. And there was a period during the 80s, sadly ended in 1989 with a democracy protest in Tiananmen Square, where it, it was experimenting in very dramatic ways with less authoritarian ways of governance, of doing business, of organizing its economy, allowing its, its universities, its new civil society organs to function independently. And then, of course, 1989 really was a very big shock to that willingness of the Chinese Communist Party to, to, to open up and evolve and change. But nonetheless, in the 90s, um, after a, a period of restoration and reaction, it, it did start to, to, to converge. And the United States, you know, ushered China into the World Trade Organization. Uh, I went on a trip with President Clinton to China with Jiang Zemin, the party general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And they were very friendly, very open. Uh, and I think wanted to find some new modus operandi. And... Um, but, you know, China has within it, it still has its old Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist system that it borrowed from Russia in the 50s. It's never changed that structure, nor has it ever uh, vacated the notion of, that a one-party state is, is the best uh, formula for them. So it's now reverting in a, in a very troubling way uh, uh, back to an earlier uh, uh, sort of guys that's more familiar from the Mao era, from the 1950s, than from the reform era of Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping is now being largely forgotten, being pushed aside. Mm. And Xi Jinping uh, is drawing upon an earlier tradition, a more authoritarian Maoist, Leninist, Stalinist tradition to structure China. And in many ways, he's been quite successful. So that leads me to wonder... How important is one particular leader to the direction of the party as opposed to how important is the just the general core ideology and the the uh the larger group of the party like which which one steers hard uh you know with with a more powerful direction well you know when um Mao Zedong was the chairman of the party he was sort of the mm -hmm. guy. And he was the be it and end all of everything. And one of the things that Deng Xiaoping did when he came uh, into power, uh, and particularly during the 80s, was he made the leadership not a big leader culture around one person. In fact, he was only a vice premier. He was not the president. He was not the uh, party general secretary. He put himself institutionally in a minor place, although he was supreme leader. But what he institutionalized was the notion of a more collective leadership that was run by the Standing Committee of the Politburo, the Central Committee mm -hmm. of the Party. And there were a lot of leaders that had a lot of power. And it was much more collective. 
and indeed the next two uh, party general secretaries, because the party is the ascendant power in China, not the government, uh, Jiang Zemin and, and, and Hu Jintao, they adhered to this notion of collective leadership. And one of the most striking changes brought about by Xi Jinping is that he is, he's ended that. It's him. It's not prima inter pars. It's all prima, and he's the man. So that was a, a, a reform that Deng Xiaoping had, we thought, institutionalized in the party that has now been abandoned. And it is, uh, uh, in many ways, enables China to be governed more effectively, albeit more autocratically. But it also means that China is, is in terms of values and political system, uh, very antithetical to everything that uh, liberal democracies stand for. So this might be something hard to, to tease out, or perhaps you, you have your answer, but it, Xi's movement away from collective leadership to it's all in his shoulders, he's, he's the leader. Do you believe, is that more of a personal, is that a, maybe not personal conviction, but is that more like a personality characteristic of he just as a person desires to amass power? Or is it more of an ideology he possesses that, you know what, one solid leader is, is the way to go? Like, you know, I think what it suggests, uh, you know, historically speaking, is that a revolution such as China had, which is a deep and tremendously, uh, disturbing and uprooting process of many, many decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and Russia had one, which in many ways maybe wasn't as quite as severe as, as China. But that such a revolutionary experience is not something you just wave away. And what we discover uh, is that, um, uh, you know, uh, China now uh, is reverting to some of that sort of genetic material that got laid down during the Mao years. It didn't just vanish. It didn't just disappear. Uh, it, it sort of went into the bloodstream of the country. And that was the experience that Xi Jinping absorbed and came, uh, uh, you know, uh, came to adulthood experiencing. And that's what he draws on. And that is largely an experience of control. When there's a problem, you control. You crack down. You, you unify, you rectify, you standardize, you, 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 you put a, a containment vessel around whatever the problem is. So we begin to see that that was how he grew up and that's what he knew. That's his toolbox. Mm. And I think we begin to have to acknowledge that, you know, history really does matter. And when you put several generations to a revolutionary, uh, you know, ringer, you leave an imprint that isn't easy just to abandon when you wake up one morning and change leaders. In your mind, is that revolutionary mindset, that revolutionary leadership, is it better fitted towards revolutionary times? And you almost need to transition out of that into more of a long-standing, like, like the, a long-viewed type of governance or ideology? Or is, is this just... A, it's also one of those questions where maybe that's just too deep to ponder. Like it's the complexities of nation building and, and nation states. Well, I mean, this is the is is a kind of a question that China scholars and and China 
policymakers wrestle with. You know, to what degree is sort of China culturally of a certain disposition that might yeah. uh, lend itself to greater centralization of power? After all, they had many millennia of, of empires who ruled completely autocratically. And it was only in the late 19th, early 20th century that the idea of, of, of republicanism or democracy or rights or the individual, uh, any of these notions that came out of the Enlightenment, that they began to enter China as people went abroad to study. And China's experiment with republican government in the 20th century with Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek um, it wasn't super successful. It might have been much more successful if the Japanese hadn't attacked and occupied China. And many people think that was the, the ticket to ride for the Chinese Communist Party. So whether China is predisposed towards autocracy is an open question. But let's just say that um, any society has sort of these incipient uh, opposites uh, within it in, in the modern age. And China does have a strong tradition, at least among educated people, of, of, of democracy uh, and many movements and many uh, uh, you know, writers and intellectuals and political figures have, have, have been carried a torch for it as is, is, is the key element to modernizing China. But there is a strong authoritarian tradition, too, that goes back not only to Stalin and Lenin, but right back to the uh, dynastic period, the imperial system. Is it, is it possible to summarize the motivations and desires, motivations and desires of the CCP? Like, in a nutshell, how do you kind of think about, think about them? I think that the first impulse, of course, is to stay in power. Mm -hmm. And to rule, to rule unilaterally, uh, not allow any challenges, whether it's from other parties, other factions, even as we now see from, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs who gain a kind of a, a very large quotient first of financial independence, which, of course, is always convertible into political independence if you're not careful. So I think that's the first impulse. But I think there, I mean, I think it really matters to the leadership and to Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party also to see China become great again. There's a deep and abiding yearning and, and a sense of um, embarrassment at the sorry state of affairs that China fell into in the end of the 19th century and early 20th when it was considered the sick man of Asia. So there's a very powerful uh, impulse to see China rejuvenated and restored to a place of greatness, which it, 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 it imagines it was, insofar as it knew the world during the dynastic period, it was the only power of consequence around. So I think those two things are very important, and they drive now this urge towards greatness and rejuvenation is sort of the wellspring of nationalism, patriotism, and all this sort of wolf warrior chest pounding that we see, a sense that, that China now is a great power. And one of the prerogatives of a great power is you get to throw your weight around. You even get to bully. Hmm. You get to have a big military and threaten people and remind smaller countries they're small and you're big and watch out. And there's something of that, I think, 
uh, a kind of a, a cathartic sense of uh, relief that China has restored itself to a position of sufficient wealth and power that it now can have its way in the world and order people around, tell them what, what it wants and get its way. That kind of makes me think, um, so, so I'll put this question to you in, in somewhat two different ways. Um, it, is that, because I'm curious, like, what is that definition of greatness exactly? And I think you lined it out a bit there, but do you think the CCP is m- more focused on the survival and thriving of the CCP? or of the people of China? And kind of the other way to phrase that question would be, would their definition of greatness more be how you just described of being more of a true empire, you can kind of throw your weight around and everyone knows that you're the boss? Or is it soft power internationally and maybe it's it's not these outward signals of power, but it would be a sign of the middle class, lower class, upper class, everyone's thriving and there's like a healthiness to the, to the, um, the people. I think the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping genuinely want to see China uh, become not just wealthy and power, powerful, but thrive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also uh, they, they have sort of mistaken the hallmarks of what, great part of being a great power is, which is you don't necessarily just push people around, but you, you, you as Confucius said, the really great leader uh, rules like a gentle wind blowing over the rice seedlings and makes them bend. It doesn't hector, it doesn't bully, it doesn't arrest, it doesn't, uh, you know, uh, oppress people into subservience. It gently influences them, convinces them sort of indirectly. Um, mm-hmm. I think also, you know, uh, it's very important to China because for so many years it was looked down on by the West as this sort of basket case so that it actually matters to the leaders what we, and I use we as the, just the outside world, what we think of China. And that's why criticisms over Xinjiang and over their autocratic system and their their saber rattling in the South China Sea and Hong Kong, etc. It really rankles them because it seems to deny them the esteem at the very moment when they think they should be respected because they regain a status of, of greatness. And uh, of course, I think what they sometimes overlook that to be respected, it always helps to act respectably. But it is of immense importance to the Chinese leadership to be well thought of abroad. And that this has very deep historical roots because of the years and years when China was, as I said, was not only looked down on, but supine before the world and occupied in many colonies like in Shanghai and the treaty ports and Japan, of course, occupied most of the country. Uh, and the various other experiences, Hong Kong, Macau, were actual outright colonies. Taiwan was a colony of Japan. So this is important to it. And um, these sort of psychological uh, uh, wellsprings of sentiment are sometimes difficult to factor into policy considerations. Well, that that certainly makes me think about... um times that I've spent in China of beforehand hearing about uh, 
this idea of face and someone's outward reputation is like incredibly important uh, and being kind of respected and honored in the position that you believe you you deserve. But then spending time there and really seeing firsthand how important appearance is with anything. Mm. I remember buying a car. Uh, this is like 10 years ago, 14 years ago. And when people are trying to sell us cars, like turning the engine on wasn't even a question. It was like, did the horn make a loud noise? Were the tires shiny? Was the paint fresh? Maybe did the windshield wipers work? And and asking these deeper questions, which for me was like natural, like, oh, well, like, do the brakes work? It's like, well, you can't really see the brakes, so they're not an important part. <laughs> it was, I'm not trying to minimize, you know, their perspective on uh, on selling a car, but it's these small things that I saw every day and it really sunk into me how important appearances in that culture. And we have things that must seem incredibly shallow to them as well. And so it, it's, you know, you explaining how the, the international uh, respect and appearance of the CCP is important to them. It, it really drives home this fact. It, do you, do you feel that your time spent in China, did you notice these things as well? Or is this like, um, I guess what I'm trying to say, starting to trip over myself now, but <laughs> did has your time in China helped you really see these, um, these elements, these like cultural differences? So you can see like, oh, the CCP R- reputation is very important. It's not just like a theoretical understanding. It's like you felt that. I think the, you know, the question of face in Chinese, there's, there's, the word is mianzi, uh, and to lose face, you know, jiulian, uh, extremely important. Uh, and this has to do with, the, I think, with the highly sort of ritualized uh, uh, way in which sort of traditional life uh, was lived, that you had to keep the, for, the forms up, the rituals up. This is very Confucian. And that if you don't, mm-hmm. you sort of deny someone face. So appearances are extremely important. And I think, of course, this is another sort of obsession of communist parties, that they look good. And that even if it's a mess behind the screen, you don't let people go there. Uh, and you, you, this is the idea of a Potemkin village that, that grew out of the Soviet experience. You, you, you do these sort of fake communities and take people there so it all looks good because you do not want to lose face. You do not want to be humiliated. And so the Chinese Communist Party speaks of the century of humiliation. You know, when China was looked down on, it was not esteemed. And uh, this is extremely important. And um, it manifests itself in small things, like, for instance, the the slavish adoration of big of, of well-known brands, whether it's a Gucci luggage or Harvard education or uh, a Tesla car, or you name it. This idea that brands are represent a kind of give people face because they have symbolic. Uh, import. So this also means that, you know, when a president, American president goes to China, 
there's a tremendous amount of ceremony and ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- th- that's also very important because it's highly symbolic in terms of suggesting respect. So th- this is a very complicated uh, kind of set of issues. And strangely, in the scholarly world, even though face plays such a pronounced role in everything that uh, is done, I can't think of a single really interesting scholarly book that looks at the cultural roots of the face question in China. And that's always interesting. You know, that really stands out in my mind how you, how you connected that as well to the Soviet Union, how appearance was so important, and it's mm-hmm. almost this hallmark of communism in general. So that's a very interesting merger of these Confucian roots in what may be individually a, a Chinese thing, this idea of face, and then also merging it with these... Um, how communism finds it very important. It's almost like a perfect concoction. It's like very powerful at that point from all angles. Like this appearance, this face is incredibly important. Um, do you do you feel like the Chinese people feel or believe that the CCP has their in, their best interests at heart? You know, that's a really important question. Uh, When you think of the history of the Chinese Communist Party, it's one of the most brutal, savage histories uh, in, you know, in the last century and a half of of global history. You think of the million-plus landlords who were just executed. Uh, Some of them, obviously, Mm -hmm. people, some not. Uh, the anti-rightist cap campaign, the, <clears throat> the Great Leap Forward, where 30, 40 million people starved because of Mao's ridiculous, uh, you know, efforts to to communize all of agriculture to beat the West and Russia, then the Cultural Revolution, and one could go on. Um, on the other hand, uh, propaganda is extremely important, not only because it convinces particularly young people in school of a certain narrative, but also it crowds out all kinds of other narratives and other kind of critical thinking. So you ask, do people support the Chinese Communist Party? Um, obviously, there are a lot of people who don't. But I think many ordinary people who have grown up with that party narrative in films and ballets and operas and books and texts and you name it, um, generally think that the party has their, their, their interests in, 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 in mind. And that makes it very complicated because it means simple-minded folks in Washington who just think that everybody can see a communist party is, is a ridiculous sham, and if you could just get rid of them, everything would come up roses. Well, you know, that's, it's not that simple. The communist party has actually done some amazing things. If you go to China and you have, you've seen the, the amazing story of development that they've brought this sick man of Asia to a state of modernity. And they've accomplished something quite extraordinary. On the other hand, they're brutal, they're authoritarian, they're thuggish, they lock people up. Um, so it is a real contradiction. But it would be a great error to dismiss what it's managed to accomplish because of a, 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 of a, uh, of a uh, you know, 
other aspects of the party's rule are um, are brutish, uh, and and that's what we're trying to figure out here. Uh, you know, how does that system work? What are its weaknesses? And we have God knows we have a lot of our own. So it's a very mixed bag, and people both love the party and hate the party. It's a little bit like our own system. And the party has actually worked in some significant ways that should be acknowledged. And it's also been an abysmal failure in other ways. And of course, it doesn't want to talk about those and won't let anybody else talk about its failures, which tend to be, <laughs> you know, sort of reinforce its own narrative of glorious, unmitigated success uh, throughout its 70 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder, all your time in China, studying China, thinking about China, how has that affected the way that you think about the U.S.? Or even has it? Well, I mean, one of the things that I have really come to appreciate, having spent so much time in China, um, I'm afraid that just personally speaking, I'm an unalloyed liberal Democrat when it comes to systems of governance. I mean, I really do believe in, in, in the, the individuals are happiest when left alone to the degree that a social compact can allow them to be left alone. And when there are things like due process and there are rule of law and you're not being surveilled and, and uh, having secret police visit you in the middle of the night. Uh, I, I really believe all those things. Um, and I, I, I look at what's going on in China, and it, it really makes me incredible. It's a great tragedy, in my view, because I think much of it is unnecessary. So uh, we are at a point where these values that I just mentioned, you know, like liberty, fairness, justice, you know, one could go on, um, are being compromised. And they're even being compromised in the West, in liberal democratic societies, when we have autocrats, Viktor Orban in Hungary, we have Poland has a similar situation, Turkey, we even had Donald Trump. So human beings are complicated, but when it, it still, uh, even though democratic societies have not always proved to be the greatest builders and the greatest, the most efficient system, I do believe that they're the most humanistic system. And I, I prefer not to have to live in a place like China. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there that I think that you just uh, opened up for us. And, <clears throat> you know, it's very interesting. I interviewed Jim Rogers, uh, maybe two months back. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with him. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, I went into the interview just wanting to hear his perspectives on China, but it ended up feeling quite um, one-sided in a way that, like, he wasn't interested in um, thinking about the the contradictions that we all face. Um, mm -hmm. America has many, and hopefully, I bring up some of those on on this show. Uh, but I, I think that's very interesting with China because. There does seem to be almost two sides 
kind of like you you touched on and but very middle very little in the middle ground of it's either like China's wonderful they're this um incredible uh experiment we should replicate many things they do or it's they're horrific they need to like change or like we shouldn't deal with them or you know it's the doves or the hawks but there's not this middle ground of like it's complicated we're complicated perhaps authoritarian regimes aren't the best for uh the humanistic element and maybe we can talk about all these things together do you do you find that that there's a challenging middle ground that that people are unwilling to wade into it's like do you, is it just safer to be in two different camps well i think you know uh undeniably what you say is is is, is true uh, we are in a bit of an ideological war and a struggle between systems to prove which is both most effective and most commodious to sort of just human freedom and human life um you know i <laughs> there are a lot of people who who do carry water for china uh and do believe china is a kind of a miracle and you know they they brought so many people out of poverty and have high speed rail great highways new airports and you know we who are we to criticize them i i don't look at it that way i i think it's not unthinkable to have all of these benefits of development and still not oppress people and still not have a uh, tyrannical rule and and uh you know abrogate people's uh people's ability to lead free and open lives and i think that's that's china's challenge and it is failed on one side of the ledger and i think in in the liberal democratic societies have also failed on the other side of the ledger which is to galvanize society and do big projects and and uh uh you know move large numbers of people from poverty into into middle class so there may something to be learned from from china for sure at least there's many things to to admire but um when it comes to political system uh that's i'm afraid where the oil and the water separates and uh frankly speaking if you have to sacrifice a little bit of development have a few less miles of high speed rail to have freedom and and justice um i would say that's not a bad trade off so looking forward what would least surprise you if you could suddenly be told the us china relationship its status in 10 20 years from now well my great <clears throat> fear is that we are in a kind of a downward spiral of adversity and 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 sort of antagonism and that with china now sort of feeling its oats and feeling that it has a right to be listened to and that in certain issues it's either its way or the highway that's an exceedingly dangerous place to be in because it 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 means that diplomacy which always involves giving a little to get a little is not operable what it means is that here we're going to give you the list here's what you have to do and if you don't do it uh we are not going to be flexible so that is quite uh alarming to me and quite dangerous and there are a couple of flash points now where china is sort of pushing the world we saw it in hong kong 
happened. And, uh, nobody could do anything about it there, so it just got left, and China will take over. But ha Taiwan's another story. The South China Sea is another story. And the East China Sea, where China contests islands with Japan, uh, is another story. And if those tension points keep getting pushed, we could very easily have an accident, planes running into each other, ships colliding, something. And we don't have the mechanisms to control them. And that could mean that the whole sort of development miracle and dream of East Asia would come a cropper and we could end up back in another world war. So it's quite dangerous. And um, we don't quite know how to arrest this process of, of the spiral downward into greater and greater antagonism. And this is the challenge Biden is confronting. How do you confront, compete, oppose, but at the same time, keep the door open, keep the mechanisms of diplomacy alive, uh, and try to find some new, uh, new framework in which these two very different and antagonistic political systems could coexist in a way that's less dangerous. Well, we only have a few minutes left. I just want to throw two questions at you that could take up an hour. So I'm sure we can just take a 30,000 foot flight over them real fast. I'm so curious your thoughts on, you, you brought up Taiwan and do you see a possibility where, let's say, China makes some kind of move to reclaim Taiwan? And do you see it as a possibility the U.S. just would do nothing? And then I, kind of the other, the other question I just want to give to you so you can allot your own time because we're almost out here. And then the other question is, how is Biden doing so yeah. far? I mean, I think that you look at Hong Kong. And, and at one point, many people thought that as China massed troops on the border in Shenzhen, they might march over and, and take mm -hmm. it, sort of, you know, like Hitler marching into Czechoslovakia or Poland. They didn't do that. They were very artful about it. They let that moment pass. And then they passed this national security law in Beijing, thrust it on Hong Kong, and they slowly neutered the whole place, driven every opposition member out of the ledge co, out of the, 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 the district councils, sent people scrambling for, for passports to get abroad, and they've taken over quite quietly and quite peacefully, and nobody's been able to do anything about it. I suspect what will happen with Taiwan is something like that. There are some islands, mm -hmm. the, the, the Jinmen and, and Mazu, right off the China coast. They might take them. Would the United States step in to defend those islands? I doubt it. Or they might throw up a blockade. There are many things that they could do, which are sort of salami slicing tactics of the kind we saw in the South China Sea. But I do think, for, for reasons that are historically very powerful to Xi Jinping, that Taiwan is something he's, he's not going to let go of. Even though Mao Zedong mm -hmm. said to Kissinger and Nixon, well, let it go for 100 years. What does it matter? And is Biden doing well? I think so far he is, uh, but we haven't got a, the play hasn't come to its, its even its second act yet. Uh, I think he is experimenting with, with what is the right mix between pushback and door opening. And uh, I think 
perhaps the only thing that would bring China around to wanting to make some sort of new deal within a new framework is if the economy really starts wobbling. It could, be, in a strange sense, be a providence for the world to have China's economy uh, hit a really tough spot, because then it would make it more make it recognize that it actually is dependent, as we all are, on the global fabric, the global sort of economic system. But short of that, it's getting very arrogant, full of itself, unrepentant, inflexible, and demanding, and that is a very dangerous. Uh, place because it's not easy for the United States, even with the best leadership and the best diplomacy, to find a way to, to, to alter that sort of chest-thumping mode. And I'm afraid China right now is in that. I mean, look what they're doing in India. Look what they did in Australia. Well, look at their relations with Canada with Sweden, with Norway. I mean, these are countries that traditionally have sat in the middle. And China has alienated them with its very provocative, bellicose uh, behavior. So that is a real warning. And how Biden deals with that is going to take immense skill. But it's also going to take the United States to get its act together, which is a very un un uncertain proposition at this point. So stay tuned. So, Brad, listen, I'm happy to talk to you again sometime if you maybe digest this, see what you have and don't have. Orville, we got to let you run. So thank you so much for joining. And can folks find you on Twitter or do you have a website or books? or? Yes, um, books. I'm an old-fashioned guy, lots of books. Uh, please uh, get them, read them. Actually, I've just written a, a, a novel historical novel about China called My Old Home, which sort of explains much of what's inside my brain over all these many years. And thank you for a, for a nice interview. I, I've enjoyed it. Certainly. Thank you for watching to the very end. If you like our content, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach the most people possible. And that way, we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week.